Amen. Good morning. Oh, let's try that again. Good morning. There we go. I'm, I'm going to take that first one as you all were just enamored with the fact that we rest in the goodness of the gospel and you were just reflective upon that. And that is okay. I will offer my apologies for interrupting that moment. Uh, so let's go with that. Um, but either way, it is good to see you. If you've not picked up on the theme this morning, clearly we are talking about the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. We'll get there in just a moment. Now, again, if you've not noticed over the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been working through a new series that we have called Identity, and we are still walking through that series together, still talking about what the Word of God says are the marks of a healthy church. Now, again, our goal is to equip our faith family with the tools needed to grow together as one, as a healthy church. Now, last week, we talked about the importance of the Word and the the central role that the preached word plays in our lives as a church. And so we're going to kind of build upon that um, this week and talk specifically about the importance of gospel doctrine. Now, you may be asking, okay, what exactly is gospel doctrine? Or better yet, what does gospel doctrine mean? Well, it means that we as Christians have a healthy biblical view of what the gospel is. Now, that sounds pretty self serving and, and, and self-defining, right? I mean, we all tend to have an understanding of what that is, but here's the reality. Many people, when you ask them what the gospel is, they, they define the gospel based on terms that are not even found in the Word of God. In fact, if I could clarify a few things for us this morning, when it comes to gospel doctrine, the gospel is not just our story, and it's not how we came to faith. That is our testimony. The gospel is not some sort of fancy way to share the good news using catchy phrases, catchy analogies, or catchy pictures, but rather it is knowing, believing, and understanding what the Word of God says is the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is the heart of Christianity. The gospel is the heart of our faith. So as we unpack gospel doctrine, we should see that a healthy church, if it is a healthy church, is filled with people who have a heart for the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, if I could for a moment, let me give you a very lengthy definition of the gospel according to what many scholars have said the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of the truth that the one and, only God, one and only holy God made us in his image to know him. However, we as mankind sinned and cut ourselves off from God. Yet it was God who in his perfect and great love, God became man in the form of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and thus fulfilled the law in himself and took on the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him as Savior and Lord. You see, he bore those sins as a sacrifice. He died, but then he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and presented his completed work to his heavenly Father. And it was God who in that moment accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and thus God's wrath against his own people was now satisfied. So God by his 
grace, by his goodness, by his mercy, and by his love has now sent us his spirit to call us with a message of repentance and faith to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our forgiveness. And if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone, then we will be born again into eternal life with God. Lengthy definition, right? Lengthy explanation of the gospel. Clearly not exhaustive, but lengthy nonetheless. So how can we simplify this if it comes to an opportunity that we as Christians may have in order to share the gospel? Well, I love what Mark Dever gives us in uh, one of his writings. He says you can simplify this by thinking of four words. God, man, Christ, and response. And then he gives us questions to go along with it. So how does this work? You start with God. When it comes to sharing my faith with someone, have I shared the truth about our holy God and our sovereign creator? Next, we move to man. And the opportunity to have before me sharing the gospel, have I made it clear that we as humans are creatures made in the image of God, and yet we are the ones who have fallen into sin, and it's our sin that has now separated us from God. From there, he moves to Christ. Again, in the midst of my conversation, have I shared who Jesus Christ is? Have I shared that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man, thus he is our substitute and he alone is the resurrected Lord? That leads to our fourth word, which is response. Does the person that I am now sharing this message with understand that he or she must now respond to the gospel. You see, as Christians, we have the responsibility to share the whole truth with the people that we now come in contact with. In fact, in speaking of the truth, I love what J.I. Packer offers. He says this, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. You see, I think this is a good lesson for us to remember as Christians, both in sharing the gospel, but also both in our own lives as well. So you see, this morning we have a, we have a complete definition of the gospel, and now we have a, a method of sharing that complete truth of the gospel, but it still hasn't answered our question this morning, which is why is the gospel doctrine so important to a healthy church? Well, as we get into the word this morning, we're going to see Paul answer that question for us from Romans chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join me now in Romans chapter 3, and we will begin reading in verse 9. And once you have found your place in the word, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. Now again, this is Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this morning. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to sit under your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to sing your word, to to hear your word spoken, to pray your word back over our lives. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word preached. And so, Father, we ask that you would soften our hearts and our minds to your truth, and may you and you alone be glorified in our time together. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what it is that you have done. We thank you for the hope that we now have In Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Father, prepare our hearts and our minds for your truth today. And, Lord, we ask that you and you alone would be glorified. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, if I could for a moment, I just want to set the scene for you. You see, Romans was written probably by Paul. Well, we know by Paul uh, writing this sometime during his third missionary journey. And many scholars believe that Paul was probably... In Corinth, may or may not, under heavy house arrest, depending on how you want to look at it, either way, he is still ministering to the people there at the particular time of this writing. Now, all scholars would agree that this particular book, the book of Romans, which really honestly is a good one to study, um, is probably the most robust expression of Paul's overall theology. Now, is it exhaustive? Chances are probably not. However, the book of Romans gives us a clear idea of how Paul's theology drove his passion for the gospel and his passion and desire to make the gospel known. In fact, the overall theme of Romans is the revelation of God's judging and saving righteousness in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we unpack this word together even further, I hope that as a church, we now begin to see the importance of gospel doctrine according to the word of God and Paul's own words. So this morning, let's ask the question again. Why is gospel doctrine so important to a healthy church? Well, first we need to realize that God, or excuse me, that gospel doctrine reveals 
our wretchedness. We see this from verses 9 all the way through to verse 20. Now, yes, this does fall into the camp of total depravity, which literally means that sin affects every aspect of our human existence. Our minds, our wills, and our bodies are all affected by sin. In fact, every aspect of who we are suffers at some point from our sin. Now, there are many people in the room who may be pausing right now and saying, great, here we go. Another sermon on sin. That's exactly why I came. I had a great breakfast. I had great coffee. I watched the news. Everything was great. And then I walked in and the pastor wants to talk about sin again. Why does this come up all the time? Well, I love what R.C. Sproul says about this question. You see, he answers it well. He says, as Christians, we take sin so seriously because we take the value of human beings seriously. You see, man is made in the image of God. Man is called to mirror and to reflect God's holiness so that mankind, we have the distinction of being the image bearers of God. Now, let me see if I can unpack this even further for a moment. You see, because we are now made in the image of God, because of our hope that is now found in Jesus Christ alone, because of our love and our care for one another, according to the word of God, yes, as believers, we should take our sin seriously. Now, again, don't mishear me or misplace this moment. This does not mean... We now have the license to go on a massive witch hunt seeking out the sin in the lives of others. But rather, when we are in sin, and I'm not talking about what we define as sin, I'm talking about what the Bible calls sin, then it should concern us. For the sake of accountability and and restoration, we should have a willingness to talk about it. Why? Because we are the image bearers of God. And yet at the same time, as, as Christians who have seen directly our brothers and sisters in sin, we should seek to restore one another back to Jesus Christ and ultimately back to the local church. You see, we can't even begin to fathom our need for Jesus Christ if we don't first understand the weight of our sin. Look with me again in the text. Paul opens by saying this. He says, we have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Notice what Paul is saying here. Paul says that all of us are weighed down by our sin. None of us are immune to sin. None of us is better than the others because our sin is lighter than theirs. No, we all carry the burden and the weight of our sin. The best visual imagery I can give to you is from John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. Whether you've read it or whether you've watched it, uh, particularly the animated version, which is a favorite in my house, We get introduced to a character named Christian, and Christian walks through life with a massive weight on his back. It is a heavy weight. It is a 
burden and it continues to grow now to simplify the story and not to spoil what really is an incredible story that we should all read or or at least watch it's not until he's at the foot of the cross at the empty tomb meeting the savior where this weight is now removed from his back and he is able to stand upright and walk freely you see we are all feeling the weight of our sin but there is hope to be found in christ More on that in a moment. Coming back to our text, Paul continues with a list of passages from the Old Testament. He says phrases like, none is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, no one does good. All these things said in verses 11 and 12. Notice that Paul is saying here that no one seeks sanctification when they're in the midst of their sin. None of them get or understand the call, and thus we don't seek God when we are in the midst of our sin. And because we don't seek righteousness, we clearly can't understand. And therefore, it is our sin that clouds our ability to seek after God. You see, when we're in the the midst of our sin, when it clouds our judgment, our minds and our lives are now affected, or better yet, infected with unrighteousness. And what is the consequence of that? Well, according to Paul in verses 11 and 12, we don't seek God. Now, this seeking God is is actually an important thing to, to, to understand. You see, as believers in Christ, we know how to seek God. In fact, it was Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and all things shall be added unto you. Again, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus speaking, and he says, Seek, and you will find. However, for those who are outside of the faith, for those who do not share the same belief in Jesus Christ that we do, for those who are enamored and enthralled and encaptured within their sin, those people do not seek after God. And the reality is this. At one time, that was us. You see, we too didn't seek after God. I love what Thomas Aquinas says about this particular point. He says, man seeks of the benefits of God while fleeing from the person of God. In other words, while God is pursuing us in his love, we are the ones who in the midst of our sin are now fleeing from God. So we aren't just simply not seeking God, but rather we are now running from God. And so Paul says that we are so rooted in our sin that it infects even the best of our deeds that leads us to run away from God. In fact, he continues in verse 13 and 14, saying phrases like their throat is an open grave. Their tongues deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You see, Paul is telling us that our throat is a direct tunnel that leads to the heart, which Paul reveals that the heart is where the root of all sin begins. In fact, if you go back and look at the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, in the midst of God speaking, he says to Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Now, I want us to pay attention to what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3. Pay attention to what's been said in Jeremiah chapter 17. Notice it was the the root of the heart that led to the sin in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to bear those things in mind as, as Christians because we need to be careful telling people to simply follow your heart. Because if the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, how can we even understand it? May I suggest for us as this morning, instead of telling people to follow their heart, maybe we should simply say to them, follow Jesus. Follow the word of God. Why? Because the word will lead us to a better place. It's the word that will lead us to make better decisions. Now, coming back to our text here in Romans chapter 3, notice how Paul's beginning to connect some dots here, okay? Let me put it together for you. You see, sin begins within the heart and then comes out of the mouth. And so Paul then teaches that the sins of the tongue are many. And it's the sins of the tongue that lead us to wound people with unkind words. It leads us to wound people with slander and with insults and with unnecessary criticisms. You see, we use the tongue to spread lies and therefore create division and desecrate the sanctity of truth. And yet right in the middle of this message... Paul gives a powerful illustration about the venom of asps. And what he's saying to us is this, man, our words, if we are not careful, our words can bring about unbelievable pain. And I'm not talking about the words that someone said, that someone said, that someone said, we said. This is not the song, I heard it from a friend who, heard it from a friend who, heard it from a friend who, Can anybody finish that lyric? (laughs) Thank you. A couple of you can. That's good. I'm okay with that. But you see, our words, our words will bring about unbelievable pain. It'll bring about unbelievable destruction. Our words will bring wounds upon people that we love and we care about. But I want you to notice what Paul does. Paul finishes this passage by saying, listen, the mouth was actually meant to be an instrument of blessing. The mouth was meant to be an instrument of healing. The mouth was to be a catalyst for kindness and a catalyst for truth. But you all are using it for cursing and to spread bitterness. That's the accusation that Paul is now making against the church. You see, Paul points us to the fact that sin that began within our hearts is now coming out as hostility towards one another from our mouths, and all of us are guilty. In fact, if you read James chapter 3, James, like Paul, man, he's all over the power of our words in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now let me unpack what what James is getting at for a moment. You see, when people claim, when they say, hey, we are praying for you, but at the same time, they're cursing the leaders, they're cursing the church, they're cursing members of the church, Paul and James are saying, no, that is sin. And you need to stop them before judgment comes. When people say, Well, this is my truth. 
This is the the truth as I understand it, and yet they offer no full context or they present a truth without full context. Then as Christians, we need to say to them, no, that is sin. Have no ear for it. But Paul's not done. He comes back to the text here in verses 15 through 20, and he says this. He says, their feet shed blood, their paths are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God. You see, Paul is telling us that sin leads to violence. Our sins will lead to destruction, whether in our lives or within our homes or within the lives of those around us. As sinners, we, haven't, we have not followed a path of peace. Why? Because we can't understand peace when we're in the midst of our sin. And therefore, we live as if we don't respect God. We live as if there is no fear of judgment from God. And we could care less as to whether or not God will be the one to decide our outcome. You see, Paul is literally saying to us this morning, our wretchedness reveals that we are irreverent. You see, there is no respect for God for the one who is enamored with sin. There is no desire to worship God when we are caught up in our sin. You see, because of the sin in our heart, we have now turned away from God. We run from God. We speak sins with our word, which leads to destruction of others, and we really don't care what the outcome of our lives will be. You see, this is what sin and rebellion will lead to. And sadly, this is where God found us. But notice what Paul says in verses 19 and 20. He says, the whole world may be held accountable to God. Works of the law, according to the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Man, don't miss this moment. You see, there's a lot of people out there who want to offer their opinions on what the final judgment will be like. And if I can, I would like to throw out my opinion on what I believe will be what final judgment will be like. And again, this is my opinion. It is not worth more than 25 cents and a cup of coffee at your local coffee shop, okay? So take it for what it's worth. But I agree with many scholars who say that at the final judgment, there will be profound silence. And we're not talking about a a silence that can be considered reverent worship before a holy God, but rather a silence uh, of that of realizing that we now stand before a holy God. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I've had brothers and sisters say to me uh, before, look at me and say, hey man, I'm really looking forward to the day of judgment. I'm really going to celebrate on the day of judgment. I'm like, man, how can you even say this? Because the reality is the day of judgment is coming for all of us. Now let me unpack what I mean before I ruin a lot of people's thoughts here. You see, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, all of the indictments against us will be clear. 
The evidence of our sin will be overwhelming. And the time for excuses and explanations and rationalizing away our lives will be over. You see, at the judgment seat of God, this is not a trial. This is where the verdict is rendered. And Paul says, all of us are guilty. You see, in order to understand the beauty of the gospel, we have to grasp the weight of our sin. We have to grasp the verdict that comes with our sin. According to the law, we are guilty, which is punishable by death. That is the justice of God. And if we don't understand the justice of God, then really, how can we ever begin to grasp anything about his goodness and about his grace and about his mercy? So I have to ask you this morning, man, are you, are you beginning to feel and understand and realize the weight of your sin this morning? Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that to just say, feel that weight and be left in it. I'm not saying, hey, this is the end of Paul's message. You're all miserable. You're all sinners. You deserve death. Have a nice day. That's not what we're doing this morning. But rather, if we're going to understand gospel doctrine, it must first begin with the revelation of our own wretchedness, but a realization that there is hope. Notice as Paul continues in verses 21 through 24, which leads us to uh, the second answer of why gospel doctrine is so important. We see that gospel doctrine shows us not only our wretchedness, but it shows us our need for a Savior. Notice Paul opens by saying in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Or better yet, the righteousness of God has now been made known. And the text continues with Paul saying, and the law and the prophets Bear witness to it. You see, Paul is now telling the church the same message that we are hearing today, that this righteousness of God is not a new thing. Even the the prophets of the Old Testament point to the fact where God's righteousness is now found. And he answers that question in verse 22 by saying, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, here's the the good news message for us in our wretchedness. Here is the, the central theme of the entire book of Romans. Paul is now talking to us about justification by faith. You see, we are brought into a justified relationship with Jesus Christ by our faith. Better yet, another way to say that is that we are now justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, spoiler alert, for the glory of God alone. We'll get there. So why is this so important? Again, Paul answers the question in verse 23. It's important. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, Paul teaches that compared to God's standard, which is the law, we fall extremely and miserably short. 
Okay, the only way I can think to compare this is have you ever watched the Olympics before? You ever watched when a runner falls and all of a sudden there's no way they're going to catch up? That's us in our sin. Have you ever watched somebody compete in the hurdles? Which, by the way, I tried to jump a hurdle once, did not go well. Okay? It hurt. I don't know how they do it. They just do it. You see that happen in the Olympics? Did they come back and win? No, they didn't. They fell short. The crowd left them behind. Have you ever watched in the Olympics pole vaulting? I'm going to go ahead and admit I watch pole vaulting. Why? Not because I'm impressed. I mean, I am impressed with pole vaulters, but I watch because I am mesmerized at how a man or a woman can run down a track, stick a stick into the ground, and get lunged way into the air. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you in my sick sin state, I watch it to see who's not going to make it. I do. I want to see who's not going to make it. I've even had the thought of, I wonder what happened if they got lunged over the line, beyond the pad, and into the crowd three rows up. Would somebody catch them? I want to know. But you see, when they don't make that height, they fall incredibly short. Maybe a better example I can give is this. If all of a sudden we shut down our little section here of road here on Lumsden, and let's say an incredible athlete, an incredibly fast athlete showed up, and let's say it was Usain Bolt, quick, right? Let's say I challenged him to a race. Why y'all laughing? That's not funny. Who do you think would win? Come on, you know. The only way I'm winning that race is if he pulls up with a cramp, and even then he's beating me with one leg. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. I would fall incredibly short. It wouldn't be close. You guys would be talking about that for years. By the way, if you have a connection to that man, do not call him. We're not doing that. I know my limitations. But you see, that's who we are in the midst of our sin. We fall extremely and miserably short of the mark of God. However, watch what happens in verse 24. Paul says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. You see, God has given us an incredible life altering gift, a gift given not out of obligation or a gift earned or a gift deserved, but rather a free gift of redemption as it was Jesus Christ who redeemed us and paid the ransom for our souls. You see, because of our fallen, sin, sick state, God in his goodness God in his grace, God in his mercy gave us the free gift of eternal life that is found through knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. God redeemed us by the blood of Jesus our Savior and Lord. So when people ask us, who are we? We can answer by saying, by the grace of God, we are redeemed. That is who we are. Let's go. And you see, gospel doctrine shows us that in the midst of our wretchedness, we needed a Savior. And that Savior 
according to the gospel, came in the form of Jesus Christ. And because of his atoning work at the cross, given as a gift from God, we now live as righteous and redeemed people. This leads us to our third and final point of why gospel doctrine is so important. Again, gospel doctrine not only reveals our wretchedness, shows us our need for a savior, but finally, gospel doctrine gives God all the glory. Look at verse 25 and 26 with me. Paul here states that Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying that, look, God appeased his wrath by giving Jesus Christ as the atonement for his wrath. Notice what God has done. God satisfied his own demands. Can I say that again? God satisfied through Christ his own demands. He satisfied his own justice. And he did so by his own righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the price of sin was paid by God's only begotten Son. And so we are now just and justified in God because of the work of Jesus Christ as given to us by God. And why did God do this? Paul states simply in verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time. You see, God gave us the gift of eternal life. God gave us the gift of grace. He gave us the kingdom. He gave us access to him. He gave us access to heaven. And he never once compromised who he was in order to do these things. Thus, through the saving work of Jesus Christ, as done by God for us and for his glory, we see why it is God alone who deserves to be glorified. It's why we can say as a church, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. You see, gospel doctrine not only reveals our wretchedness and shows us our need for a Savior, but we now see how it was God who by His grace redeemed us through the person and work of Jesus Christ so that we could be united with Him. Therefore, God alone deserves all the glory because God accomplished his plan and he deserves the glory for it. God is the one who removed all that now obstructs us from him. Man, if there's one thing that we need to know, it is this. As a church... We're going to make mistakes. As a church, we're going to make a mess of things. It's just going to happen. Why? Because we're people. Doesn't excuse it. We're just people. But if there's one thing that we need to get right, we need to get gospel doctrine right. Even Paul says this to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing more, or excuse me, I decided to, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
You see, Paul tells us, man, if we miss anything else, let's at least get the gospel right. Because the gospel is foundation to who we are. You see, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ today, man, we need a healthy understanding of gospel doctrine. This can only come when we begin to see our own wretchedness. It comes when we begin to see our need for a Savior and how Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And then we see that God has given this all to us so that he alone will be glorified by his creation. Do you realize that we are a part of God's creation? Man, I don't know where you are or what you're going through or what your life's been like this week. I don't know what's happened to you, but I want you to think about this for a moment. You and I are a part of God's plan for the universe. Think about that for a moment because this week I read an article. Um, I'm one of those people, I pick up random articles and read them. I was reading one about astronomy and they were talking about black holes, particularly some of these new black holes and what they do. Many of you who have any remote idea of what science is, you know what a black hole does. It's really a powerful and amazing thing that God created. And yet the God who created that, the same God who created the sun, moon, and the stars, that God created you and created me. And just as he has a purpose for all of the heavens, he has a purpose for us as well. We are a part of God's plan. And that part is for God to be glorified in our lives. So as his people, man, let's be a people that are faithful in proclaiming the message of the gospel. I want to leave you with these words from a pastor, recently retired. George Truett says it this way. When speaking of the church, he says, the supreme indictment that you can bring against a church is this, is that such a church lacks in passion and compassion for human souls. Man, my prayer is that we would be a people who desire to make Jesus known. My prayer is that we would be a healthy church that has a full, holy, and complete understanding of the gospel doctrine. Knowing that we are wretched sinners. Knowing that we were in need of a Savior. Knowing that we were saved by grace through faith in Christ. Knowing it was done for the glory of God alone. That's the gospel doctrine we need. It's the gospel doctrine that we need to share. Let's pray together.